Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and from our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ. Our text today is going to be taken from the reading we heard in the book of Philippians as we conclude our series today through Philippians that we've called Complete Joy. You may be seated. Let us pray. Almighty Father, what a great joy it is to be in the presence of your people, to be here receiving your word and singing your praises on this day when we celebrate the recovery, the preaching of your gospel. We pray, Lord, that as we hear your word, you would grant us your Holy Spirit now, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, once again, happy Reformation Sunday. I do love this Sunday. The orchestra and the choir and everyone sounded so great. This is a wonderful Sunday. And if you've been Lutheran for a while or been around the Lutheran church, you know that this Sunday is a big deal for us here. Because this is a Sunday where we celebrate, as I've mentioned already, uh, the recovery of the preaching of the gospel. So you're here this morning and you're probably expecting to hear some kind of sermon about the great news that was recovered by Martin Luther at the time of the Reformation. That though we are sinful beyond all hope, God has sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to be our Savior. And your sins are forgiven by God's grace alone, through faith alone, all on account of Christ Jesus alone. He has forgiven you and saved you and justified you in all of these wonderful things. He has done simply by His grace for you. You are forgiven because of Jesus Christ. That's what you're expecting to hear today. And if that's what you're expecting to hear, good news, I just told that to you. Uh, and so you're welcome. There it was. Uh, you're not thinking today you're going to show up to church on Reformation Sunday, especially in a church where we focus so much on the gospel. You're not thinking you're going to hear a, a topic on something else, like, I don't know, uh, stewardship and money. Trick or treat. That's what you're getting today. Uh, Reformation Sunday, we're concluding our series, uh, series on the book of Philippians. And we have been working for two months through this wonderful book of Philippians. We've called our series Complete Joy uh, because we are living in a culture right now that just seems to suck the joy out of everything. So we need to recover the joy that we have in Jesus Christ. And I, I believe that's what Paul has done for us as we've worked through this book of Philippians. But as we come to the conclusion of the letter, Paul addresses the Philippians and he speaks to them about their giving, about their support of his ministry, their financial support of his ministry, and really how they should view their money and their finances in light of the gospel and in light of the joy that they have in Jesus. So that's where we're going to conclude the series today here on Reformation Sunday. And at first blush, it does seem odd that we're going to talk about stewardship of our money and we're going to talk about uh, giving and things like that on Reformation Sunday. But actually, if you think about this, this makes a lot of sense. Because if you look back on the history of the church, you will find that bad teachings about money have caused a lot of problems. And, and money is a very important thing in our life. We're not going to say it's not important in our lives. But very often when we have bad teachings about money, and faith in their relationship. It becomes an attack on our faith. It causes us to question the grace of God. It really becomes a significant spiritual problem when we speak about money in the wrong way. For example, the whole Reformation really began because of a very bad stewardship campaign that was being run by the Roman Catholic Church at the time. Do you know the story? It goes something like this. Uh, the church at that time 
was teaching a doctrine called the doctrine of indulgences. And in fact, if you are no the Roman Catholic Church at all, they still teach the doctrine of indulgences. Uh, but the doctrine of indulgences says this. You might be saved. You might be uh, a, a Christian. But when you die, you might not be Christian enough to get into heaven. So what you need to do before you go to heaven is go to a place called purgatory. So your body dies and goes to the ground and your soul goes to a place called purgatory uh, where your sins, the leftover sins, are purged from your life. Now, purgatory can last for a very long time. And so some people were worried because they knew they had grandmothers who were Christians but also told one too many dirty jokes at Thanksgiving dinner. And so they were worried about what grandma was doing right now. And so the church says, listen, we've got this deal where we can actually free people from purgatory. We can take years off of purgatory. And if you'd like us to do that for you, you just need to pay for it. And so people came and they would give money to the church to free their loved ones from purgatory. What's more, they would give money to the church so that they could earn their own time off of purgatory, so that they could become cleaner and righteous faster in that purgatorial era, uh, so they could go to heaven sooner when they died. They were, in other words, paying for their salvation. Now, the master of teaching, this was a guy named John Tetzel, and Tetzel, uh, he would reportedly sing, now I've, I've recently read that this might not actually be uh, Tetzel's words, but there was a famous song, a little ditty going around, uh, that would sing this. When the coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. And it, was like, it was like a Taylor Swift hit at the time. It was huge, okay? <laughs> Everyone loved it. Now, obviously, you guys, we hear this, and like, obviously, this is a problem. And in, in many of the theologians and the monks and the people of, of the 16th century were furious at how this teaching on indulgences had gotten way out of control. And so it drove many of them back to the scriptures. In fact, Martin Luther and the other reformers, they went back to the Bible to see what the Bible actually taught about indulgences. The 95 theses that Luther nailed to the Wittenberg door in Germany, that really is on October 31st of 1517, those were theses discussing the problems of indulgences. And as they studied more, they began to learn a number of things. Like, for example, there's no such thing as purgatory. Uh, two, that you can't buy your way to heaven. In fact, they found that this whole teaching on indulgences was the fruit of a much deeper-rooted problem in the church's doctrines. That the church was teaching salvation, righteousness, justification before God was on the basis of your works, on your performance. And all of this becomes an attack on that grace alone stuff we mentioned at the beginning. Because it makes you think that salvation is not by God's gratuity, not because of him sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die for all of your sins, but rather your salvation is dependent on your performance. And here that performance was ex exemplified in the giving of money, saying you could earn your salvation, not only earn your salvation, but buy it was the cheapest and really the most perverse form of salvation by works, and it totally undercut the good news that salvation is fully and completely yours on account of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. You know, if you hear nothing else in the sermon today, well, I hope you hear everything else in the sermon today. We've got a lot to cover here. But if you hear nothing else today, at least hear this. You must not let anyone ever tell you that your works make you right in the eyes of God. 
Do not let anyone ever come along and tell you that you are righteous before God on account of your performance. Your righteousness is found in Jesus Christ alone. It was his work for you. That's his job, and he did it perfectly, and he did it perfectly on your behalf. You are, in fact, forgiven and righteous now, all on account of Christ Jesus. But there's some people who don't find that promise completely satisfying. And they begin to want to know, how do I know it's for me? How do I know the gospel is for me? How do I know God loves me and God favors me? Well, here's uh, some other bad teachers, more recent bad teachers, though I suppose we can find these people throughout the history of the church, have come along and decided to give you an answer that is related to your money, that is related to your financial situation. We call these people uh, preachers of the prosperity gospel, which is not really, that's very misleading because it's no gospel at all. And the prosperity teachers will come along and they will say, if you want proof of God's love, you just need to look at how successful you are in life. And they'll stand up on the TV there and they'll say, listen, you can see how much God loves me. Because I got a nice suit. I got a nice car. I got a nice house. I got a beautiful wife. I've got a jet that's not working really well right now, but I can afford to hire the people to fix it. I got all this going for me and that's proof that God loves me. Just look at my bank account. There is my assurance. Now that is obviously wrong. And it's all kind of a joke if it weren't so poisonous and actually harming the faith of people. But we have to ask ourselves the question, how can preachers like that who are clearly blaspheming God find any sort of audience in this world? Because they're, they're capitalizing on this deep-seated American idea that we equate success and worldly comforts with God's favor. You and I, whether we want to admit it or not, we very often think this way. That we are blessed if we have everything we want in life. And then we wonder if someone is hurting or sick or poor or out of a job. If they have God's favor at all. This sort of American gospel will say, if you, are, if you are going through bad things in your life, it must be because of something you've done wrong, of some perhaps hidden sin in your life that you haven't gotten rid of yet. And if you can just get rid of that, if you can fix your faith, if you can get rid of all the bad and start doing all the good, straighten up your life, then the blessings from heaven will pour out upon you. Then it's just going to be like this great big financial waterfall in your life for the rest of your life if you just get things right. Paul has no place for this in his sort of thinking. The New Testament will have none of this. In correcting this thinking about money and faith today, Paul actually says this, which I, this is a wonderful text for this sort of thinking. He says, now, I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul's saying, listen, I faced all kinds of circumstances in my life. There have been times where I have been well taken care of and comfortable and provided for. And there are times where, like when he's writing to the Philippians, I'm sitting in prison and nursing the wounds of people who have been throwing rocks at me to try and kill me. 
But whatever situation I am in, I have found that I can face that situation because I belong to Christ Jesus. I mean, can you imagine Paul sitting in prison, like nursing his wounds and and feeling all the bruises and saying, you know, I must have some hidden sin which God is punishing. If I just get right, then I'll finally get out of this place and have my mansion on the hill. Oh, Paul knows that equating this idea of God's favor with earthly comforts was an attack on another one of those uh, alone phrases, the solas, if you like the Latin, those alone phrases. It was an attack on faith alone. It attacks faith alone by trying to take our eyes off of Jesus and his promises and his sacraments for our assurance and to fix them instead on our circumstances, our finances, our material blessings, which are so fleeting. Paul says, listen, I can face any circumstance in life because I have Christ Jesus, and better said, Christ Jesus has me. Paul knew how to want and how to abound because he knew that both of those situations brought different kinds of temptations with them. Rich and poor people, Paul could say, are tempted by the idolatry of money. You cannot look at your financial comfort for assurance of God's blessings for you. You only and always have Christ Christ alone saves you. Christ alone justifies you. Christ alone is who grants you a place in the household of his Father. And his forgiveness, his love, his salvation doesn't depend on your circumstances, but only and always on his dying and rising for you. It depends on his shed blood, not your bank account. Depends on him. Do you want to know? Do you want to know if God loves you? Do you want to know if God favors you? Do you really want to know? Were you baptized? Then there it was. God said, I favor you for all of eternity. Are you uncertain about that? Understand, He's put me here to tell you that today, to put this in your ears. Have no doubt, you who are sitting right there and wondering if I'm talking to you, I am. And you are the one that the Lord looks at and says, you are my beloved, I've purchased you with the blood of Jesus. Come to the altar today to eat that body and drink that blood and know that it's for you. That's where we look. Not our current circumstances. You are blessed because of his love for you. So finances become a tricky thing in the church, especially when we try and get our money to do the work of Jesus. When we try and use it to save us or we try and look to it for assurance, all of that can only be found in Christ. But simply because there are distorted teachings on money doesn't mean we should avoid the topic. Money is, in fact, a gift to us from God, and so we do need to think a little more faithfully about how we handle this gift, how we steward the gift that God gives to us. And if we want a great example of what we ought to do with this, we need look no further than Philippians 4 and to see what this congregation was doing. And Paul does a wonderful job of showing us what the Philippians do. This is what he says. It was kind of you, Philippians, to share in my troubles. And you yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. The Philippians had this money, and they used it. They didn't trust it. They didn't try and buy their salvation with it, but they used it to love their neighbor. And in this situation, that neighbor was Paul in his suffering and in his ministry. 
They used it to support the ministry of the gospel that was being carried out by Paul. Receiving these gifts for Paul was a great joy. For him, he didn't depend on these things. He depended on Christ. But it was a great joy for him to receive these blessings because in this he saw that the Philippians still loved him. But what is more, that the Philippians loved the preaching of the gospel. And their giving demonstrated this. They loved the ministry more than their personal comfort. And this might be a good thing for us here at Community Lutheran to hear today. Here's where the sermon gets uncomfortable. Happy Reformation, everybody. Uh, if you are visiting with us, we're going to do a little housework here, and I'm, I'm glad you're here, and, and you're going to hear a little bit about stuff we have to think about here at Community right now. We are a congregation that is incredibly generous. I am constantly overwhelmed by the love and the support and the, and the giving of generosity that I see within this church. When Paul speaks to the Philippians about the joy he has in, in the fruits of the gospel that he sees there, I totally identify with that with, with community. A great example of this is we saw a few weeks ago with how our Rooted and Growing Stewardship campaign went. Uh, we had a goal to reach a million dollars over the course of three years, uh, and we have $750,000 pledged uh, to that, but already right now we're hovering over halfway there. I mean, that's, that's really quite amazing, actually. And that's because you guys love the ministry. You love this church. You want to see the ministry continue here, and that's, that's thrilling to me. But I also have to let you know that not everything around here is coming up roses. And if you've recently looked at the, uh, at the um, proposed budget for next year, you know uh, that we are proposing right now a deficit budget. And that's not as much fun. Now, why is this? Is it because everyone here has quit giving? No. No, in fact, I think everyone here is still being quite generous. But what we have seen over the past year, if we really want to get down to the details, is a number of families have moved away. They've gone to a, another state. And so that's, that's impacted our giving. I don't know. I also don't know if you've seen this, uh, but gas is now well over a dollar. Um, and things are a little more expensive uh, around right now. And so some of these things are impacting the, the giving here to the church. And so what we have to do is propose a, a deficit budget. Now, there's a lot that goes into this, and if you'd like to talk more about it, it's not always great to do this in a sermon. And really, it's my favorite topic, so just call, and I'd love to talk to you more about why all of this is, is kind of going on. But it does cause us to ask a few questions. I mean, if you really think about this, if everybody in our congregation would just simply tithe, that is, give 10% of their income or what they get, we would have no reason to have a deficit budget. It's just that simple. This is a very easy solution. And there are some of you here who are doing way more than that, who are giving way above and beyond. And for you, thank you for that. There are a lot of you here who are on fixed incomes and couldn't do that because, you know, you feel like it's necessary to eat dinner and those sorts of things. Like, and we get that too. And I'm not, for you, whatever you give is the generosity of your heart and we understand that. But then finally, to be honest, there are some of us here who could give more, who, who, who don't really take into consideration all the stuff that goes into the ministry here and re recognize that uh, churches don't exist for free in Southern California. And some of you might need to really sit down and take a hard look and pray about how you give to the church in this next year. I would ask all of us here to do that, regardless of what your giving is at. Pray about how it is the Lord wants you to use your money for, this, for the support of the ministry. 
Now, I know we in the office are very aware of what's going on here, and we're having a lot of hard conversations, and we're have, asking a lot of hard questions about where can we, we cut, what can we do to be better stewards of the gifts that God has given to us and the sacrifices uh, that you all are making for the church. And I'm committing to you, we are doing this right now. But we, we have to think through these things. We have to talk about them. And this is now uh, a conversation between you and the Lord and your family. If you don't want to talk about it with your family, just blame me and say, Pastor's making me talk about this and have the conversation. And then you can all criticize me for the rest of the night. It'll be wonderful. It'll be a nice roast the pastor night. But as it turns out, uh, stuff costs money and costs are rising, and we all know it. And so I'm asking you to think about how you give to support the church. As we get ready for the new year, we've got to have these conversations. And it's good. It's good. They're healthy conversations. It's good for us to have them. But as we do this, we need to understand something. That as children of God, we all give from a place of abundance, not from a place of lack. We all give as people who are provided for with daily bread, and God doesn't hold back. As Paul gives us this wonderful promise today, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ. God will provide for you. God will take care of you. It is a promise he has made. And it's from that promise that we can be bold to give. But all of this must be said here on Reformation Sunday with one very important caveat. Your righteousness before God does not depend on how much you do or don't give. Your righteousness from God depends on everything that Christ Jesus has given for you. It's all on account of Christ. Even if we all cease to give here, God will still be the generous God who gives you His Son, Jesus Christ. Community Lutheran Church will always be a church where we preach nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified for the forgiveness of your sins, and we deliver this to you in word, sacraments, whether we got the money for it or not. But we are called to love and support this ministry. But we do so from a place of the gospel, never to earn the gospel. We do so because we have a God who is rich and abundant in mercy towards us. God is the one who graciously gives us all his gifts in Christ Jesus. And isn't that finally the message of the Reformation? That in all things we depend on a God of grace and mercy. Your money's going to come, your money's going to go. It is, it is here and it is gone. It is fleeting. But when we have it, we use it to love our neighbor. Well, however we are dealing with life financially, one promise remains the same. This is true for you. You have been purchased with the shed blood of Christ. You are forgiven and you are loved eternally by His grace alone, through faith alone, all on account of Christ alone. Amen. We pray. Almighty Father, we give you thanks for your generosity towards us in Christ Jesus. Lord, that you abundantly provide us with our daily bread. And now we ask you this day, O oh Lord, to watch over our congregation. Watch over us, each of us here and give us generous hearts that we may continue to support the ministry of your church. Lord, let your will be done for us in all things. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.